This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization is a pending U.S. Supreme Court case dealing with the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi state law that banned abortion operations after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. This case represents the first serious challenge in nearly 50 years to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that determined a right to an abortion was constitutionally protected. By hearing this case, the court is considering whether Roe's precedent should continue to enshrine abortion as a constitutional right or whether the historical context that existed before and since that decision suggests the court's findings were flawed. What is the history of abortion opinion and jurisprudence in America, and how might it influence the outcome of this extremely contentious case? My guest today is Ramesh Panero, senior editor for National Review, a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion, and a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Mr. Panero is an historian who has focused much of his research on the history of abortion law, including his senior thesis at Princeton entitled Abortion in 19th Century America in Brief, and most recently in a National Review opinion piece entitled The Corruption of History. Mr. Panero will share with us his views on the controversies over the historical underpinnings of the Roe versus Wade Supreme Court decision and reflect how these debates still serve to shape the arguments made in the recent Dobbs oral arguments. When I return, I'll be joined by writer, editor, columnist, and historian Ramesh Panero. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now joined by Ramesh Panero. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Ramesh. Thanks for having me back. All right, before we get started, I, I want to let our listeners know that uh, you and I are not going to uh, settle the abortion debate today in the half hour we have together. Uh, instead, I want to tap into your expertise as a historian, uh, particularly an historian on the subject of abortion jurisprudence in the U.S., really from our founding to present day. Um, before we get into the details of uh, um, abortion jurisprudence, uh, uh, how, how did you become interested in this topic? I understand you, you wrote a thesis uh, as far back as your days back at Princeton. That's right. So the question of the history of abortion law in the United States has played a much larger role than most people realize in the way the Supreme Court has handled the issue. And around the time I was in college, there was a set of briefs to the Supreme Court by hundreds of signed by hundreds of American historians urging the court to reaffirm Roe v. Wade and making a kind of historical argument for the decision. And so my senior thesis looked at that legal brief, which had been already pretty influential, and went through the sources and showed that the brief contradicted the sources that it was claiming to rely on and contradicted the published work of a several of the scholars who had signed the brief. And uh, this was a really kind of interesting kind of historical puzzle. Um, but uh, over the years, 
um, the influence of this false version of history, and as as I'm suggesting, sometimes fraudulent version of history, um, has just continued to expand. Now, this uh, you, we don't want to impugn the integrity of his, uh, our best historians, uh, but one might assume that they may be using some sort of uh, motivated reasoning. In other words, they they want uh, a particular outcome in the court, uh, so they find the historical underpinnings uh, to do that. Um, but we all might be accused of being uh, motivated reasoning um, or using motivated reasoning in right. our conclusions. Um, if, if one were to sort of uh, uh, look for reasons for you arriving at the conclusions you had. Uh, well, you know, clearly, in your writing, it, it, you 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 come out against Roe uh, and perhaps the abortion uh, issue itself. But is your um, historical analysis informed by some sort of uh, personal preference or religious doctrine or religious belief? Yeah. So um, let's uh, let me try to take a couple of the interesting issues that you've raised. Um, uh, and separate them first. Um, I think it's 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 completely right to say that there's some motivated reasoning going on here. And I would think I would divide the historians who signed these briefs into multiple categories. Some of them were not subject matter experts. You know, I, I remember in particular, uh, I've forgotten the name by now, but I remember looking at the CV of one of the signatories and finding that they're an authority on French colonial architecture in Southeast Asia. <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure they were just they're pro-choice. And um, maybe some colleagues said they, you know, show them the this statement and they assumed it was it was fine and it was for what they considered a good cause. So they signed it. I put in a different category, the actual subject matter experts. You know, look, even some of their work, I do think, uh, has some errors or uh, and sometimes um, some interpretations that are unduly influenced by their policy commitments on abortion. But it, but signing a brief where you're a subject matter expert and it just contradicts your own work, I think that falls into a different category. Um, and that is uh, that's a lot more problematic. As to my own reading of history, you know, uh, yeah, I have my certainly my moral and my policy views um, about abortion and about other things. Uh, but you know, I'm a, the world is complicated, and um, uh, history is never going to be a kind of neat story that um, that ev- where everything lines up in a predictable uh, and kind of um, moralistically satisfying way. But I'll give you one example of this. So one of the historical controversies that um, is at issue here is the role of American physicians and the fledgling American Medical Association in persuading Americans to tighten up the laws on abortion in the middle of the 19th century. And the arguments, one of the arguments that that gets made is that the doctors were really doing this for reasons of professional self-interest. They were unhappy about these irregular, unorganized doctors who were willing to perform abortions, um, and they wanted to suppress the competition. And I pointed out, and I've pointed out in several places, that this doesn't really make sense uh, unless you assume that the doctors already had some other kind of opposition to abortion. Otherwise, they could have outcompeted these irregulars by performing them themselves, maybe getting a legal monopoly on performing them. <clears throat> and there's plenty of evidence that, in fact, 
A, the physicians themselves generally believed that um, abortion was a monstrous crime, and B, they only succeeded in persuading the public and the legislators by making that argument. The legislators weren't moved by an argument about the self-interest of these doctors. But here's what I think is kind of interesting, and I actually didn't haven't had a chance to, to go into this in my um, uh, recent writing on the subject, but the doctors at the same time that they were campaigning for a stronger prohibition on abortion were also arguing for the legalization of prostitution on public health grounds, and they didn't succeed. That argument just fell flat with the legislators and the public. And uh, I just mentioned that because it's kind of a surprising thing, I think. I don't think that a lot of people would think of these as kind of twin causes or uh, be aware of the physicians having been involved in both of these campaigns at the same time. But it's a sort of a true and interesting feature of the historical record. Sure. Now, um, just for our listeners' benefit, uh, we are not talking about this historical analysis merely as a, an issue for academics to ponder. It has relevance. And um, it was actually, when we go back 48 years to the Roe decision, uh, quite a bit of references were made to um, uh, the history of abortion in America to support the decision of Roe uh, made by Justice Blackman and and uh, and others in the uh, majority. So this is not merely uh, you and I considering how things were in the past, but rather the court itself looking towards the past to inform its current day decision. Um, what can you tell us about how this, let's say, alternative narrative was created? Where where was Blackman or, or other justices um, using as the sort of foundation for this? this notion of of abortion as it was before Roe? So there was a sort of self-consciously revisionist um, uh, lawyer, a law professor, historian, and activist for abortion in the 1960s, Cyril Means Jr. And he published two very influential articles making this counterintuitive argument that abortion had been a liberty at the time of the founding and that when it was prohibited later, it wasn't because people believed that unborn children had a right to life. It was for other reasons. In his case, in the article that he was writing, it was because um, legislators were supposedly only concerned that um, these abortions were unsafe operations and potions uh, for the pregnant women. And uh, Blackman has an extensive historical discussion in Roe v. Wade in which um, Means' scholarship is cited six times. Now, one interesting thing about this is that the successful legal team in Roe v. Wade, Jane Roe's um, legal team, um, <clears throat> which was sort of actually more interested in abortion activism than in adequately representing um, Norman McCorvey, uh, it was well aware that Means was stretching and fudging the facts. Um, there's an internal memo that has subsequently come to light where um, one of the junior associates says, um, you know, this this is not this this can't really be believed, but it might be worth doing if it works. And of course it did work. But what's interesting, one of the things that's happened since then is that these sort of false legal claims sort of have ping-ponged back and forth. So they come from the law review world with Cyril Means's work into the Supreme Court, and then they get cited 
Uh, this gets cited as a kind of authoritative statement of history by subsequent scholars who cite sometimes Roe v. Wade. And then there are more legal briefs that are based on this false history. It becomes part of um, a series of books. So Lawrence Tribe and Ronald Dworkin both wrote big books on abortion in the 1990s, very prominent liberal legal theorists. They rely entirely on the on the fake history um, in their historical accounts of abortion. And specifically, they they relied on that historian's brief that I was talking about that I had shown contradicted its own sources. So um, I want to take apart, uh, I don't know which way to, to go with this, but I want to take apart uh, where um, uh, Cyril Mean Jr.'s uh, account of, of, of abortion jurisprudence in the past is, is inaccurate. You, you alluded to some of those uh, features uh, in your first answer. But um, how is it that one person, Cyril Mean Jr., is able to influence uh, an entire court? Uh, and how is it that competing scholars might not uh, be available to set the record straight? Again, uh, I'll allow for the fact that this may be motivated reasoning that the, the justices may have you know, started with their conclusion and merely looked to the right answer or what they thought to be the right answer. But what is your version of, of, of that? So um, let me maybe maybe I should start by just giving it as simple an example as uh, as I can of the kind of at best really shoddy historical work that we're talking about in the case of Means. He cites um, one of the 18th century um, medical treatise writers and says um, that he's describing unborn children, the human embryo as a monster. Well, if you, if, if you look at that passage in context, what the author is saying, this 18th century author is, author is saying, is that it doesn't look like a, what we're accustomed to human beings look like. He's talking about the form and appearance of the human embryo. But he goes on to say, just a few pages later, obviously, life starts um, that this embryo is a human life and deliberately killing it would be a, a capital crime. Um, so I think this is just a, one of many examples of sort of a clear distortion to make the easiest to, to grasp. As for why it was so influential, I think that uh, all the sort of the best and the brightest in the late 1960s um, were moving in a pro-abortion direction. Um, this seemed to be kind of the wave of the future. And the courts had been sort of liberal and progressive for quite a long time. This all sort of dovetailed with what they wanted to believe. And um, the opposition was just seen as um, some kind of crankish, um, hidebound uh, Catholics and uh, and people who would be sort of swept away by history in short order. It didn't work out that way, ultimately. Um, but you can see in the way Roe is worded and the way it's received um, that there was this expectation that uh, we don't really need to listen to to another side of this argument. They're they're going to they're dinosaurs. They're going to disappear. So in uh, the New York Times front page story, the day after Roe is issued, the Times says it's a historic resolution of this issue. That is, this is a, this argument is now over. Right, it's been decided. And in fact, um, we talk about, you, you mentioned in your, your piece that uh, the historical underpinnings of Roe were starting to crumble even as Roe was being decided. And yet there was a later case, it happened in uh, 1989, uh, 16 years later, 
uh, Webster versus Reproductive Health Services, where they characterize abortion as a common law liberty at the time of the founding. Um, how, again, does a, um, in a sense, a controversial issue that was historically mm-hmm. controversial and theoretically settled by Roe, how did that suddenly become a common law liberty? So by then, the um, by 1989, of course, this is a sort of a raging controversy, uh, and it's pretty clear that um, you know the, the the pro-life side of this argument is not just going to meekly disappear, and it is considered by the supporters of Roe v. Wade very important that they get this the historical profession as much of it as possible on record, um, using their expert authority to strengthen this case. Now, they're stuck with Roe v. Wade's argument about abortion being a common law liberty. And you know some of them believe some version of it. And so they'd seek to bolster it. And they do it by finding anything in the historical record that could possibly support it. So, for example, they're trying to make the case that at the time of the founding, abortion is not only supposedly a liberty, uh, but is also commonplace. Uh, and they find um, uh, another writer who says, you know, very often abortion is no is no fault of the mother. Uh, it's entirely blameless. Again, you go to the actual source and it becomes clear he's referring to miscarriages, um, which are still to this day sometimes called spontaneous abortions. And the author is, in, in fact, a, a very ferocious opponent of deliberately causing an abortion um, using you know the term that the way we would use it today um, that then just that goes into the legal brief as you know nobody minds abortion uh, in the 18th century uh, they go on to distort the record of the physicians they sort of they you know one one interesting thing is a lot there's a lot of to the extent 19th century feminists took up the question of abortion, they were opposed. And the brief um, really kind of insinuates that they were supporters of abortion. Um, and you have to be reading it very carefully to uh, to see they're not actually saying that and they don't actually prove it because it's the it's the it's the exact opposite of the truth. So I want to um, analyze again. We we're talking about what history, how the history regarded abortion, and you made the case that um, at least the argument in modern times has been the only person who would outlaw or oppose abortion are people who um, uh, may be concerned about, or the people who support abortion were largely concerned about the the welfare of the mother, and that there really was no regard for any um, inherent right of of the unborn child, um, and therefore, uh, you know, it, it, what follows then is this this regard uh, uh, giving constitutional rights to unborn children is a relatively modern phenomenon. Why is this aspect of the argument so important? Why is sort of ignoring the fetus or whatever word we want to use on the show? Why is that uh, an important? Uh, um, uh, distortion. Well, the Supreme Court, wa- I, I, th- I think it serves both a legal and a political purpose. So the legal purpose purpose is that the Supreme Court um, has developed a body of law that says that um, it should provide constitutional prof- protection to those aspects of liberty 
that are kind of deeply rooted. The phrase is deeply rooted in America's um, history and tradition. And so this is an argument that abortion is deeply rooted in America's history and tradition, which is phraseology, by the way, that was just about verbatim used um, by the advocates uh, for abortion in the oral argument in the Supreme Court last week. But uh, the political purpose is also just to say uh, it's it's a twofold one. It's first to say, you know, abortion is tradition. Roe v. Wade isn't a radical or revolutionary decision. It's the restoration of an old tradition. And then it's to discredit the opponents. The idea is there's there was never any real belief in unborn human life. There was just there were a bunch of um, professional self-interest, there was sexism, there was racism. And, uh, you know, the, so some of these liberal historical documents like the, the brief in Webster sort of insinuate again, that's still what motivates opponents of abortion. They're not really concerned about unborn human life. Um, it's that they're, they're, they have the same racist and sexist motivations that they did back in the 19th century, but they've gotten better at hiding. So let's explore again. I would think one of the most persuasive artifacts of the history of abortion would be laws on the books that forbid it. Um, again, going back to our founding, um, you make a reference to um, uh, mid 19th century by the time the 14th Amendment was was um, passed. Um, we had 37 states, I believe, and 30 of them had laws against uh, abortion. Say more about what those laws look like, um, you know, how criminalized was the practice. Yeah. Um, to me, that would be very persuasive that our, you know, our founding fathers held it in low regard. Right. So, um, so abortion had been for centuries uh, illegal at common law, um, but it wasn't until uh, 1827, if I recall, that the mammalian ovum was discovered, and there's a lot of kind of folk biology dating back to Aristotle, where people weren't sure when you had a human life, um, just in the sense of, you know, you have a human organism um, that's alive. Uh, and so early in pregnancy, there was this question of, did a crime take place if there was an abortion? How will we prove that that happened? Now, it was never considered a right. Um, it was always clear that even early in pregnancy, the attempt to provide an abortion was unlawful, um, that there are various things you could do um, to discourage it. You know, contracts to have to perform abortions, again, even early in pregnancy, were void because they were for unlawful purpose. But there was this problem of how do you prosecute? And actually, that's one of the ambiguities in the historical record that ends up getting exploited to create this myth of abortion as liberty. But as scientific understanding is growing in the middle of the 19th century, uh, there it becomes this campaign, again, physician-led to, uh, to say that abortion should, should be, by statute, made a criminal offense at every stage of pregnancy. And, uh, and so that's by by 1868, the time of the ratification of the 14th Amendment, um, a supermajority of states have um, have tightened the law uh, because it was seen as sort of 
what we were already trying to do, but now updated in light of scientific advances. Now, um, the laws were on the books. Uh, forgive me for this, uh, you know, uh, this odd question, but were people doctors or uh, or mothers uh, or anyone actually prosecuted uh, with these laws, or is this sort of a um, uh, a way to discourage or dissuade people without uh, locking them up? Well, it depends on the, the the time period you're talking about. So it there we we have records of cases of prosecutions for abortion um, in England back to the 13th century, in uh, what was then colonial America back to the mid 17th century. Not tons of them, uh, you know. Partly it's just records from those times can be can be hard to fine. But partly, I think uh, Joseph Delapena and his extremely long um, and exhaustive history of uh, abortion in Anglo-America comes to the conclusion that it just abortion just wasn't very common uh, for for many, many centuries and really until the last few hundred years um, because the methods of abortion that were known and available for almost all of our history, either didn't work, didn't actually kill the baby, or were extremely dangerous to the mother, or both. Um, And so it's not really until the 19th century that you start having a significant number of abortions and then a significant number of prosecutions. Um, The prosecutions that, you know, there, there were a lot of the time, the prosecutions were there to sort of make a point um, for their kind of exemplary effect. That's one of the reasons, by the way, that um, these laws either explicitly or in practice um, rarely held the um, pregnant woman to account for procuring the abortion. I mean, sometimes you'd need her testimony in order to do what the law considered more important, which was to stop the abortionist. I see. So let's zoom forward uh, with the time we have left and talk more about modern times and, and its reliance on the past. I, uh, you know, I sat through the two hours of uh, oral arguments as, as a layperson, I'm not an attorney. So um, some of it, uh, um, uh, was, uh, seemed a bit, um, legalese, uh, but what struck me, uh, was after I listened to the, the arguments after having read your piece, listening carefully for some reference to, uh, earlier jur- jurisprudence, uh, you know, essentially the underpinnings of Roe. And I think it was the closest I came to hearing anything was when, uh, Justice Alito asked, um, those trying to overturn, uh, strike down the Mississippi law about, Give me your best case, meaning your precedents before Roe, uh, that uh, indicates that this is a long tradition uh, that the precedent uh, even predates Roe, and and the uh, and the uh, attorney uh, could not come up with anything. Explain for us the uh, the importance and significance of that. Yeah, that was inter- that was a very interesting exchange. Um, uh, Justice Alito tends to do his homework, and uh, I think the questions that he asked. Um, evinced a familiarity with this historical dispute. And uh, he was asking Julie Rickleman, the lawyer for the Jackson uh, abortion clinic um, involved in this case. And as, and you're exactly right. He, he had this line of inquiry about the history 
of abortion law. Rickleman keeps answering with this basically mythological version of that history uh, and says that um, you know, it was recognized as a liberty. And Alito, I think, pretty clearly meaning, okay, cite me a court case from this time that recognizes abortion as a liberty, says, what's your best case? And she either misunderstanding the question or unable to come up with a good case um, instead treats the question as though it had been, what's the best case for abortion rights in the Constitution? And she then sort of retreats into a boilerplate answer. Right. So in other words, when he meant, not make your case for abortion, but rather cite me a case that uh, establishes the right to abortion before Roe. Uh, in either case, she did not answer the question. Um, uh, so let's, if I want to, we're getting close to the end of our time together. I want to wrap up with this whole notion of, uh, well, not the notion, principle of stare decisis that precedent prevails and that we've got a precedent of Roe of 48 years, um, uh, good or bad. Um, you know, it's called the reliance doctrine, which is people live their lives now expecting a, um, safe and reliable access to abortion. Um, is there any foundation uh, or any sort of uh, thing within the context of stare decisis that prohibits the court from genuinely uh, considering this issue? Is it, is it you know, an inviolable principle now that it's 48 years old, or uh, is it still as open to debate as it was 48 years ago? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously an intensely debated subject. Um, and part of the intensity of it is that um, everybody understands really that the, um, that you can't give it total deference, right? You have to be able at some point to overturn erroneous Supreme Court decisions. And this was another exchange um, that was really difficult for the advocates of abortion who were uh, at the Supreme Court because um, they want to make such a, a sort of a fetish out of never overruling precedent. They end up getting tripped up over things like, well, then was Brown v. Board of Education, which overturned uh, a more than 50-year-old precedent, plus E.V. Ferguson, um, how do you justify that? And would it have been wrong to overturn it, you know, two years after it had been issued? And they were really kind of tripping over themselves and not able to give an answer. I mean, I think the truth of the matter is pretty obviously that um, a decision of the Supreme Court can be so erroneous that um, it demands to be overruled, uh, regardless of the passage of time. So I want to uh, close by again uh, uh, appealing to your knowledge as a historian and say, okay, let's let's uh, let's uh, imagine uh, it with the Dobbs case in the worst case scenario for pro-choice advocates, um, Roe is overturned, and essentially we take the uh, case, the issue of abortion out of the court, out of the Supreme Court, and return it to the states and state legislatures. As a historian, is this um, um, handling of the issue of abortion more or less consistent, again, if Roe is overturned, with our historical, you know, again, going back to uh, Aristotle, going back, um, how how has abortion been managed and, and, and looked at in the past? Uh, and is um, a pre-Roe or post-Roe world more consistent with that view? For most of U.S. history, abortion was prohibited with various degrees of stringency and legislatures in each individual state led the way. Uh, Roe v. Wade interrupted that history 
by summarily declaring the laws of all 50 states from the most conservative to the most liberal null and void. And if we were to undo Roe v. Wade, to overrule it, uh, we would return, I think, to uh, the kind of situation that is what the founders intended, which is that even on intensely divisive questions, it's the people and their elected representatives who make the law and not um, nine robed individuals sitting in Washington, D.C. So those of us sitting here in Boston probably won't see a very, very different world, uh, but other states with other priorities and other uh, preferences might. Yes, that's right. I, I think you'll, you will find that um, uh, the laws of the states are going to more accurately reflect the sentiments of the people in that state, um, which doesn't mean you know there's uh, uh, an end to this debate, um, but it means the debate, I think, takes a maybe a more constructive form, and at any rate, a form that is more in keeping with our Constitution. Indeed, uh, I say I, I don't think it's the end of the debate. I think it's the start of the debate, uh, having it had been ended for 48 years, right? Um, well, thank you very much for much. This has been a, a very uh, uh, interesting conversation, and I don't think we, as I promised, we didn't settle the issue of whether abortion is a uh, a good idea, uh, but rather we said, uh, what is its legal um, history, um, which is what I wanted to get to. So thank you very much for sharing your uh, your knowledge and uh, wisdom with us today on Hubwonk. You're welcome. This has been another episode of Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. If you enjoyed today's episode, there are several ways to support the show. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to help make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it would be great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. If you have ideas or comments or suggestions for me for future episode topics, it would be welcome if you email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for another episode of Hubwonk. Thank you.